Well, I was thinking just before I got up here <clears throat> of this passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, where John was shown a vision here of one who had a, a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And the question was, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? I'm not going to speak on that tonight, but I do want to open this book. And the question seems to be relevant. Who's worthy? Who's even worthy to open God's book and especially to speak from it? Well, I know I'm not. Let's ask God to open His book for us. Father, we would ask that You would open Your Word to us tonight. Just that You might be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Well, here's another question. The first was, who's worthy to open the book? But it has this question is right along the same lines. And this should be a question that all of us ponder. How can we be holy enough to be acceptable to an infinitely holy God? I was reading from Tozer today, and he said, when we think about God's holiness, we should be thinking about the fact that His holiness is unapproachable, and it's incomprehensible, and it's unattainable. God's holiness is unattainable. So how, do you, how could you possibly come up with any other answer to the question, how can anyone be holy enough to come before and be acceptable to a holy God? You couldn't come up with any other answer except that no one is holy enough to have communion with the Holy One. But we want to find the answer to that this evening. Actually, the answer's been in all these songs we sang already. But we're going to look at another song uh, that's in the Scriptures, or at least part of one, that gives the answer also. So let's uh, <clears throat> look at this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin reading with verse 
14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the spirit, in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul's answer to the question that I posed, how can anyone be holy enough to come before a holy God, is found not in a particular thing that we do or can do. It's found in a person, and that person is Christ. Now, he's talking here concerning some of the various aspects of the church, and he, he gives some, some uh, characteristics here. He says uh, that uh, the church is a household of God. In other words, it's a family. And the church, uh, the very name itself, which he uses here, the church of the living God, means the called out ones, ones who have been called out by God. And he says that the church is the pillar and support of truth. So the, the church is, a, is to display and hold up before the world the truth. But what truth is the church primarily to display and support? Well, he goes on to tell you, and he, to do that, he uses what apparently was uh, a song, a hymn, that was known in the early church. You note how that section there in, in verse 16 is set off uh, from the rest of the text. That's because it was... Uh, some type of a poem or a hymn of the early church. Uh, which is an amazing thing because of you see how much content there, there was in, in this hymn. Each line is loaded with meaning. And uh, so that, I think, is a good guideline for how if we want to sing hymns the way... That, they were sung in the early church. We should look for ones that are loaded with content. And uh, I, I noticed this evening that the ones we sang were of that character. So that's, that's good. But uh, he says that the church is the pillar and support of truth. And then it goes on to say, by common confession... Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, we're going to talk about this thing of godliness tonight because that's what we're talking about when we're talking about how can we be um, holy enough to come before a holy God? How can we be godly enough to be in the presence of God? 
Well, he says the answer can be found in a person, and that person, of course, is Christ, but he uses, he doesn't just write something about Christ on his own. Apparently, this was something that was in circulation. He says it was by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. So here he uses a, a song or a hymn to bring out uh, this, his answer to how we can be godly. Now he says it's a mystery. Now you, you remember that mystery in the New Testament is something that had been concealed but now has been revealed and so it's not something that we're in the dark about anymore. God's opened it up um, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so here our subject then is the person and work of Christ. That's the only way anyone is going to be able to stand before God. No one in themselves is sufficient to be able to come before God. It has to do with the person and work of Christ. So this mystery of godliness, that's what we're talking about here. What? What is the mystery of godliness? Well, I'll tell you some things it's not. It's not baptism. It's not going to church. It's not some rules of conduct. It's not taking communion. It's not giving a, uh, a certain amount of money to church or to Christian causes. The mystery of godliness is being reconciled to God through Christ. And so this is what he goes into here, the work, person and work of Christ. Yeah. Um, there is a definite link between what we believe and how we live. And Paul's bringing that out here. You must believe these things or you'll never have true godliness. You must be looking to this person or you'll never have godliness. Um, this is the great problem with the religions of the world. They do not understand this, that godliness is not in those ceremonies and it's not in all the rituals and not in, it's not in anything. It's in a person. It's in Christ. And unless, you, unless you're rightly related to Him, unless you know Him, you don't, you don't even know what godliness is all about. You're thinking in terms of externals and Christ is the only way that we can have this, this holiness that we're talking about that that allows us to be able to stand in God's presence. So, um, just in a, a little aside here, um, the fact that this is was a, a song or a hymn uh, made made me mindful of what Tozer says. He says, "Now, <clears throat> if you want to advance in the Christian life." He said, You're gonna, you, need to read, you need to know the scriptures. But he said, you also need to ch study church history 
But he said the other third ingredient he recommended was read, meditate on the great hymns of the church. Because the great hymns of the church are filled with, with truth. They're filled with the reality of what God has put on the hearts of God's people down through the ages. And you can benefit greatly from that. So here we have, I don't know, maybe this, is, this might be part of the earliest hymn uh, that the church uh, is responsible for. So let's just uh, let, let me just read it again, and we'll take each section here. And let me before I read, let me just say um, this: the way it's organized, the way it's set up here for us, um, is not really chronological. In other words, uh, you can't just go and say this happened and this happened and this happened. I don't think that was the intent here. Um, and we'll see that as we read through it. It's more like the, the, there's little couplets here. The, fir- the first two lines, the next two lines, and the next two lines kind of go together. And they kind of uh, play off one another. He, was, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. So there you have flesh and spirit. Beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations. So one beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So you have those kind of couplets that fit together here. Um, the point, of course, is to get our eyes focused on the right thing. And that's Christ. If we're, if we're going to have godliness, if we're going to have the... Uh, the ability, the access to God that, that we're talking about, we have to be focused on Christ. We have to be focused on who He is and what He's done. So, first of all then, He who was revealed in the flesh. So, right away you have the reality of Christ coming, the incarnation, His humiliation, His coming down into the world. Um, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was revealed in the flesh. Um, As the songwriter said, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. There is a question whether this uh, should be translated, and some some of the earlier manuscripts even have have it this way, God who was revealed in the flesh. Um... But that's the thought. The thought is of, of Christ coming down from heaven, uh, which he said over and over, I came down. So he was revealed in the flesh. Yeah. This, is, um, this is, is the thing that we can't comprehend. God becoming man. The Son of God becomes the Son of man. The eternal Son of God taking upon Himself human nature. As again, another songwriter, Wesley, said, Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. It's incomprehensible what we're talking about. Even in this first line, we are in so deep that we are definitely over our heads. 
he who was revealed in the flesh. Um, so it speaks of his incarnation. It speaks of his humiliation, his coming down, the creator becoming part of creation, uh, the sovereign becoming a servant of all. And we should never lose our wonder at this aspect of the gospel. Yeah. If we do, uh, the, you know, it just means we've go- gone cold. We, we've, we've, we're in the, at least the lukewarm class. Um, if we are not moved by just this one thought that God became, <coughs> became a man. It's just... Uh, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He who was revealed in the flesh. Uh, One man said it this way, Christ uncrowned himself to crown us and put off his robes to put on our rags and came down from heaven to keep us out of hell. He came from heaven to earth that he might send us from earth to heaven. So, great is the mystery of godliness. Step one, he who was revealed in the flesh. The next thing, he was vindicated in the spirit. Vindicated, shown to be right. Though this world hated him when he came, though he was, was despised and rejected by men, though, he, though his enemies denied his claims, and even the most religious people of the day turned against him and denied what he was saying. Yet he was vindicated by the Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he proved to be all that he claimed to be. Now, if you think about just his life, he, he, he was one who from the beginning to the end of his life here on earth, he, he was anointed by the Spirit. He had the Spirit without measure. No one can say that except this one who was vindicated by the Spirit. He had the Spirit without measure. Um, he was kept sinless by the Spirit of God. He, everything he said was spoken by the Spirit of God. His words were spiritual words because they were, they were brought forth by the Spirit of God. Uh, he performed miracles by the Spirit of God. He cast out demons by the Spirit. All this, you see, he was constantly being vindicated by the Spirit even as men were denying him. But the big vindication, of course, comes when he's raised from the dead by the Spirit. That's the great vindication. Men took Jesus and crucified him in his weak. He was crucified in weakness, it says. They, they crucified him as a, really as a worthless criminal. But through the power of God's Spirit, God raised him up again to show that this was not the case, that what they were seeing just in terms of the, this outward man, there was much more there. There was much more. He was one who was vindicated then by the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit. Man's thoughts about him were demonstrated to be false. He was vindicated 
Though put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit, we're told in 1 Peter 3.18. So, the resurrection then was the great demonstration that he was who he said he was. And I think included in this idea here is the work of the spirit in a person's heart. He, God vindicates Christ in everyone he opens his their eyes. When he opens their eyes, Christ is automatically vindicated. You may have known him according to the flesh before, read some things about him, saw some little things in Sunday school or stuff, or something like that, but when he opens your eyes, suddenly he's totally vindicated, and you know that things are a lot different than what you thought before. And he introduces you to a new kind of life. Uh, Life in the Spirit which is what we're talking about here in this thing of godliness. So, again, great is the mystery of godliness when we think of Christ being vindicated in the Spirit. And then it says, beheld by angels. Now, there's two ways of taking this, and the one way would be beheld by Messengers. You see that, word, that Greek word angels is the same word for messengers. And it could be that this uh, early hymn was thinking about how God had his uh, apostles see Christ after the resurrection. And then they gave testimony of that. And so he was beheld by those messengers. And then the church from then, uh, they went out and he, he was proclaimed among the nations. But I'll take it the way that it's here in, in uh, this particular uh, translation, beheld by angels. Uh, again, it's, it's not for sure that this is the right way of taking it. Either way, it's a wonderful truth. But uh, we'll go with the angel uh, uh, one here. I mean, the normal way we think of angels. And that is, the work of Christ was so tremendous that it was something into which the angels longed to look. And in fact, they were very much involved in his life, involved in his earthly life. You see from the beginning to the end of his life here on earth, the angels, not just longing to know more, but actually being involved, Christ sending the angels as messengers and helpers, to Christ at various situations and uh, places in his life. Um, First of all, at his birth, you know, that they were present at the birth of Christ, the angels there with the shepherds, for instance. Suddenly there appeared these angels, um, a multitude, it says, of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. So they were there. They were at the, at his birth. They were there at his uh, temptation. Uh, angels ministered to him there in the desert. They were there in his agony in the garden. It talks about angels ministering to him. Uh, they were there at his death. Remember, there were angels there at the tomb. Um, Luke 24, 4, while they were perplexed about this, uh, seeing this empty tomb, behold, two men suddenly stood near, stood near them in dazzling clothing. 
clothing. Well, the, whenever you see men in dazzling clothing, you're, <laughs> you're dealing with angels in the Bible. So anyway, uh, they were there at his death, but particularly there, they were there at his resurrection and <coughs> ascension. You think uh, there of the ascension when he, Christ is going back to heaven. It says, uh, as the disciples were there gazing intently into the sky... While he departed, behold, two men in white clothing, there's some of that dazzling clothing again, stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? So uh, he was beheld by angels throughout his life. Um, we know that God specifically commands the angels to worship him. We're told that in Hebrews one six, uh, and when he, that is God, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So they, they were constantly ministering to him and commanded to worship him. So they knew him as their glorious Lord, and yet there they were involved in this time of when he was on the earth and uh, working out man's redemption. And I think that's what the idea there is, uh, where it talks about them longing to look into what was being done here in the redemption of mankind, uh, wondering what, in some way, wondering what God was doing uh, through having His Son go through all these things uh, here on earth. And I guess it's... There's, you might look at it this way. They saw the one whom they had worshipped living and dying here on earth and tried to, trying to figure this thing out. So it says, beheld by angels. Again, great is the mystery of godliness. The angels couldn't figure it out. And then he was proclaimed among the nations. The one who had come from heaven, who lived here on earth, this man of sorrows, despised and rejected and crucified, rose again, um, vindicated by the Spirit, worshipped by angels, is now being proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations, and by that I think it's the, the emphasis here is Jew and Gentile. It's not just a, the the this uh, group of people that God had dealt with through the Old Testament, the Jewish people, but now He's being proclaimed as Savior of the world, proclaimed among the nation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Uh, the resurrection, the resurrected Christ tells his followers to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And God calls this a mystery, or Paul calls this a mystery, that this dividing wall that had kept the Jews and the Gentiles separated is now being broken down, and that the, uh, the Gentiles are fellow heirs of salvation. So, the the proclamation going out to everyone everywhere. That's the idea. In the, in the New Testament, 
the, the feel that you, that the writers want you to get is that this gospel is now going out everywhere. Um, Colossians says it this way, one twenty-three. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which, and of which I, Paul, am, am made a minister. But isn't that quite a way of saying it? I mean, really at this time, uh, it hadn't spread out that far. And yet, the, the idea was that this is open now, this, this gospel, this good news is going out everywhere. It's for everybody, every place. Uh, in fact, it's proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So, proclaimed among the nations. Uh, this mystery of godliness. And, you know, especially this idea of going out to the Gentiles, that was such a major thing that it took a took a vision for Peter to get a hold of it. Uh, he, he, he drug his feet on that. And uh, the fact that God was not going to show any partiality and that this gospel was to go out to the Gentiles was something very radical. So they, this uh, early hymn puts that as a major emphasis, proclaimed among the nations. And then, not just proclaimed, but believed on. Believed on in the world. It was effectual. People were coming and having their eyes opened and their hearts changed. And people were putting their trust in Christ. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation believed on Christ and began to worship Him. uh, Embracing Him as Lord and Savior. So from a world that had rejected him and a handful of followers that initially even denied him came a church that was spreading out through the whole earth. Uh, one person said it this way. I've, I've used this quote a number of times, but I like, it. I like it a lot. The gospel exploded on the old, tired world of the Roman Empire with tremendous energy, shattering prejudice, creating faith, sweeping away tradition, and begetting a love-filled community of men and women who were willing to risk everything and bearing witness to the one who was dearer to them than life itself. The gospel exploded into the tired Roman Empire. Uh, In fact, in one generation... The gospel went as far east as India and as far west as Spain. It just spread out like a fire. In fact, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce entitled his book on early church history in the first hundred, couple hundred years, The Spreading Flame. So, again, great is the mystery of godliness. Here were people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation believing in this one, believed on in the world. And then lastly, taken up in glory. So the hymn began, and I don't think, I don't think this was probably all the hymn, but uh, even this part that Paul uses, it begins um, with the incarnation and humiliation of Christ, Christ coming down from heaven. And 
it ends with his ascension, his going back, taken up in glory, uh, back to heaven as the triumphant king. The victory has been won. And uh, that's, again, what we see there in the book of Acts. While they were, and this is in Acts 1, uh, verse 9, while they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So he was taken into glory. And I don't think uh, that it's just the idea of just his ascension, but the fact that he's there now, uh, ruling and reigning. Um, uh, I think uh, sitting, I think the thought that should come to our minds is that he's taken up to glory and in glory, sitting at the right hand of God, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he's in a position now where all... all uh, Power has been given to him. That's what he said. Uh, in heaven and earth, and he's going to be there until his enemies have been are made a footstool for his feet. So again, all of this has to do with this great mystery of godliness. How can a person? come before a holy God? How can you be godly enough to be in the presence of God? And uh, the answer is in what we've just read, in the person and work of Christ. Uh, Again, I think it's significant how much content is in these just these six lines. Um, especially when you think of the early church being made up probably they think about half of the early church were slaves this is the kind of hymn they were singing Uh, a lot of them couldn't read but they could sing this this hymn it's loaded with truth well um This, this was a common confession. This is not an extraordinary thing for one particular group, but this was a common confession that the center of what they were doing was Christ. The center of their life was Christ. The center of their understanding of how to be right with God was found in Christ Christ. 